Mount Hermon is its delightful place. I love being here, talking in the sunlight under the shade of the trees, and then this welcome auditorium. We're going to turn to our second of four considerations of various means of outreach of the gospel into the ancient world in those first 75 years. We talked about Christology in the first hour, and we mentioned that there's this, um, uh, what we have to deal with today is uh, something akin to Stoicism. And I would say just one other quick thing that I wanted to say then and forgot to say, and that is that One of the reasons I think that we see a diminishment of preaching on Christ and its centrality is because we have ceased talking about sin. If you listen to sermons and literature of a generation before, you will see that sin and confession of sin was mentioned freely and regularly in services. Today we tend to talk in terms of mistakes. Uh, A cruder term is screw-ups. I don't like that, but I've heard that fairly frequently from the pulpit. Slips. And we talk about these as as flaws. They're dinks. They're dings and, and dents, but they're no substantive damage to the vehicle. And when we diminish the significance of sin, then we, by correlation, diminish the need for a Savior. If the essential problems that we have are ones that we can deal with, then we do not need a Savior. If sin is too significant for us to deal with, then in fact we do need a Savior. And these all begin to form a a composite and an amalgam. Now, I want at this point to talk about a second aspect, and that is witness. And I'm going to do the same thing that I did last time, look at a passage in Luke, and then ask you to show me and to discuss. This is a little more complex. Um, The last hour was a primer. This is kind of a final exam. It's a tougher one. The relationship between the Lucan report and the echo in Acts. Witness. I'm going to make a statement here that will seem obvious, but is I think it's, like many obvious things, it's very important and needs to be repeated. The primary mission organ of early Christianity, if you were going to re- finish that statement, the primary mission organ, organ means, way of early Christianity was, what would you say? Preaching. Um, No surprise here, the church. We know of no other missionary champion like the Apostle Paul in early Christianity. I think that we tend to look at Paul 
and his missionary agenda, which was so mature and aggressive and wide-reaching, and think he's the model that caused the early church to become so successful in propagating and extending the early Christian faith. I don't want to diminish the significance of Paul in any way, but I want to say that we know of no other missionary like the Apostle Paul who, whose mission endeavors were as systematic, as extensive, and as influential as Paul's. Now, it's true that we have in the New Testament and in the early church names of missionaries. If we take Paul off the table and I ask you who other, what other names, some of you will say, what? Apollos? We know that he traveled. Barnabas traveled. Timothy traveled. Philip travels. We've just discovered Philip's grave. Absolutely his grave. A, if, you, if you want to get on holy ground, go to Hierapolis. There's no other place you'll find an apostle's grave. They know it's, everybody's, the archaeologists are, are just uh, revved up and ramped up and couldn't be happier. Um, this is Philip's grave right there in, in uh, Hierapolis. We know that Apollos, uh, we know that Peter, look at the first letter of Peter where Peter is addressing this to mission churches that he has founded up in Bithynia, Pontus, Asia, and Galatia. When did Peter go there? Now those are really a long ways away. That's even further than Paul goes north. So Peter evidently has had a mission experience there. So his John, John writes to the, early, to the churches there, the churches in John, some of you have been to trip on a trip to Turkey to visit the churches of the Revelation in the west coast of Turkey. It was called Asia in those days. We know that, as I've mentioned, Ignatius has churches also in the same area, seven of them, and he's missionized them. And there, of course, were many others. But, but the, the um, solitary mission pastor champion like Paul is an anomaly. It is not, he is not normative in the early church. But what we do know is that the early church extended and expanded and adapted in the ways that I mentioned yesterday. And it didn't happen solely or maybe even primarily through these missionary champions like Paul. It happened through the church. It was the church as this alternative witnessing community. Not simply witnessing by its preaching, although certainly that, but also by the formation of its life. It's taking in of children that otherwise would have been exposed. It's ransoming of prisoners of war. It's acceptance of Gentiles and Jews and attempt to keep these two together, not always successfully. Ultimately not. 
It's a sad story, I think, that we were unable to do that. But the early Christians, like us, were not infallible. Listen to what Otto von Harnack says. Harnack writes a book called The Mission and Expansion of, early Christ of Christianity. He writes this book in 1905. It's translated into English in 1908. This is the translation I'm reading from. There's one chapter in this book that I strenuously disagree with, uh, Harnock's view of the Jews. It's, it's profoundly anti-Semitic, and it's just grating in the post-Holocaust world. But if you take that book out, if that chapter could be excised, this would be a great book. And so I'm not saying that everything that Harnock says is correct, but I think this is pretty close to being spot on. I quote, every Christian community was a complete, was a unit complete in itself, but it was also a reproduction of the collective church of God. And it had to recognize and manifest itself as such. Interesting point. Harnock is saying that every church, whether it's the church in Hierapolis, we just mentioned that, Corinth, someplace else, saw itself in two lights. It was an example of the the ecumene, the ecumenical church, but it was also a genuine local uh, representation of the body of Christ. So we have um, we have local integrity with ecumenical uh, representation and affiliation. What a sense of stability a creation of this kind must have given the individual. Harnock realizes that the ancient world is a time of flux, it's a time of anxiety, it's a time of uncertainty. The great mystery religions are collapsing, and certainly the Greco-Roman religions are collapsing. The great gods and goddesses of, of, the, Ro of the Greek pantheon are collapsing. There's this kind of, 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 of philosophical and the great philosophical systems are no longer holding sway. Philosophical and religious, certainly unease, perhaps even anxiety. The church provides this stability. What powers of attraction it must have exercised as soon as its objects came to be understood. And here I want to quote or to emphasize this. It was this and not any evangelist which proved to be the most effective missionary. Interesting statement. In fact, we may take it for granted that the mere existence and persistent activity of the individual Christian communities did more than anything else to bring about the extension of the Christian religion. I don't know what you hear there, but what I hear is that if we can free ourselves from the mystique of sensation and success and the strong person, the champion, the hero, the superstar, and realize the power and the effect of the composite of committed individuals into a community, there we're talking about the magic, if that's the proper word, that God uses the body of Christ to extend his witness in the world. 
I want to look at two passages, once again, a report in Luke and an echo in Acts um, about Christian witness. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 24. This is a wonderful Easter text. Perhaps some of you uh, preached on it. If so, your congregation was certainly blessed. The Gospel of Luke, as many of you know, um, follows Mark in uh, about a third of its length. And of fully one half of its length, Luke is indebted to material that is, appears in no other gospel. Um, I have written a book arguing that this unique material in Luke almost certainly comes from the Hebrew gospel because whenever we are on Lucan ground, that would be the infancy narrative, chapters 1 and 2. There's no parallels there. Then we go into this huge central section, chapter 951, all the way through the end of chapter 18. Not a single parallel there. Lots of these parables, the parable of the prodigal son, parable of the good Samaritan, uh, parable of the great banquet, parable of uh, the Pharisee and the, and the uh, tax collector, parable of the, the, the importunate woman in which Jesus makes God into this corrupt judge. That's so interesting. Couldn't he have thought of a better image? He'll do anything to communicate the gospel, I guess. All this material is unique to Luke. Where is he getting this material? Because Luke, no, he tells us he's not a disciple. He says, well, I'm getting it from eyewitness reports. Well, the Hebrew gospel claimed to have been written by Matthew. That would be an eyewitness report. And then Luke starts to follow Mark again for the passion pretty carefully. But boom, we get into chapter 24 and Luke's on his own. And man, does he take flight. If we didn't have chapter 24, the, the, your life and mine would just be impoverished as Christians. This walk to Emmaus... Wow, he hits the ball out of the park. Jesus does, but Luke tells it. <laughs> it's a wonderful story. It's capable of endless reflection. And let's read it. Verse 13, chapter 24, verse 13. And there were two of them, two of the disciples. We're not told who they were. One of them will be called Cleopas. We don't know who the second is. Why isn't the second mentioned? That's, that's really interesting. Some people say, well, it was Luke himself. He's being modest. I suppose that's possible. I don't think it's probable. Maybe it was Cleopas' wife or his sister. We know that the apostles travel with their wives and sisters. Peter says that. Uh, Paul says that. And said, Paul says, I'm the only one who doesn't take a wife around. The rest of you guys do. I come to the conferences alone, says Paul. <laughs> we don't know who the second one was. Two of them in that day were going to a village that was 60 stadia away from Jerusalem. 60 stadia comes out to about seven miles. The village was named Emmaus. They were speaking with themselves as they were going about the things that had happened among them. And it happened as they were speaking, they were having a homily, that's the Greek word, they were having a homily among themselves. 
debating, Jesus himself drew near and joined them. Their eyes were prohibited from recognizing him. That's an important point. Luke is telling us it's not just that they were unobservant or stupid. They might have been both, but that (laughs) that does not account for why they don't see him. This is Luke's way of saying God was at work here. He will use the exact same thing, incidentally, remember in that major um, the word I'm looking for is passion prediction. That major passion prediction in chapter 18 where Jesus says the Son of Man will go and be roughed up in Jerusalem and be killed and they were unable to understand it. This is hidden from them. So we find that that the divine providence here is withholding recognition and conviction from the disciples for a moment. We don't know why. Jesus said to them, hey, what have you guys been talking about? Interesting ways. What words are you batting back and forth, literally, anti-ballo, among yourselves, as you're walking? They stood dumbfounded. One of them, Cleopas, said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what the hell's going on here? (laughs) You can just hear Cleopas, dang, this is making me mad. We're having a serious discussion. We've got a huge problem, and this idiot has joined us, and he's just mucking up the conversation. The humility of Christ to come into this incarnate word. He heals Jairus' daughter and people laugh at him. And here he gets cussed out for asking the question. I'm not sure he was cussed. I cussed. <laughs> Jesus said to them, what things? Oh, gosh. <laughs> They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who was considered a prophet, capable, able, powerful in word and in work before God and all the people. What do you think of that? Is that a complete, good, adequate profile of Jesus? It seems pretty good, doesn't it? Would there be anything that's missing? There might be. Our rulers betrayed him to a judgment of death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping, oh boy, how often I've talked like this, if only. I had hoped that we could have avoided that. I wanted to have something different happen. There's just this sense of forlornness in that statement. But we were hoping that he would be the one to come and redeem Israel. And now things have gotten worse. It's been three days since all these things happened. And there have been some women among us and they, were, they have brought back a distressing point. 
report, for they did not find his body. And they say that they had even seen angels. <laughs> it's an interesting, carefully regarded. They were women, and this is what they said. <laughs> they say that he's alive. So we dispatched some of those who were with us to the tomb, and they found as the women had said. But they didn't see him. Now here's an interesting point. The veracity of their women's report has been affirmed. That tomb is empty. But that doesn't make the disciples believe. Until they see Jesus, no fact and no logic and no reason will convince them. Verse 25, Jesus himself said to them, Oh, you who are so foolish and so slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets spoke, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And having begun from Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. In that one verse, on the road to Emmaus, they got a seminary degree. <laughs> this was a biblical theology of Jesus showing that the scriptures necessarily testify to his suffering and his mission. They approached the village where they were going, and Jesus made as though he wanted to go further. But they constrained him. Parabiazane, strong word here. They, oh gosh, they coerced, they pressed him, saying, Stay with us. Look, evening has come, and the day has set. And so he allowed them to prevail, and he stayed with them. I, I just think this is great. Um, they don't know who he is. And they're somewhat short of temper, I think, when he first joins them. This remedial um, teaching, they don't want to do that, but they do it. They're Christians. <laughs> but there is something about his presence they don't want to lose. They don't know why, but they don't want him to be away from them. And I think that is, we're talking about witness here. And there's something about both of these stories in which the incomer, Jesus, in this instance, is communicating to them a sense of belonging, um, a sense of assurance, a sense that um, things are going to be all right, that's profoundly meaningful to them. It's not important that they be able to articulate it. It is certainly clear that they experience it.
And so he stays with them. They went and reclined, and as he was with them, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. So he's, he's been the guest, and all of a sudden he's now the, the host. He's changed roles. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he departed from them. And they said to each other, were not our hearts on fire as he spoke to us on the way and opened to us the scriptures? In my, uh, my preface to my commentary on Luke, I, I said, Luke the evangelist indulges in a word of his own personal testimony in the first four verses. I'm going to choose the same precedent for myself. And I said, it's my hope that people who read this commentary will have the same experience as those on the road to Emmaus. Did not our heart burn with fire as he opened to us spoke to us along the way and opened the scriptures to us. This is fire. And it comes from the scriptures. Now, if you'll turn to a passage that you might not think has much in common, but I'm going to ask you once again to to try to think over correlations to the book of Acts, chapter 8. It's a story you all know about. It's a great story, equally interesting. It's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and it begins in Acts eight twenty-six. Now, I'm going to ask you, show me points that Luke, in the way he narrates these two stories, that have Elements in common. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Now, this is after the, the persecution that breaks upon the church at the death of Stephen. Paul is involved in that persecution. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go down south along the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, and Gaza's in the desert. And one of the most remarkable things about reading the Bible is how this is a, the New Testament, in the Old Testament, of course, too, is a document that's already now 2,000 years old, and yet when we read it, we can come across words that are in the daily news. If you go to any newspaper today, you'll see the word Gaza uh, probably in the first three pages because Gaza is just an embattled area in Israel. It's the very same Gaza. And if you've been to Israel, and most of you have been, I'm sure, you can actually take and follow this exact same road down the hill from Jerusalem. It goes by Beth Shemesh, uh, which is also an Old Testament uh, uh, location, and out towards Gaza. We know exactly where it is. It's a stone-covered road. You can still see the wheel marks in that road from the Roman carts and chariots that would go down there, and on the steep ascents, they've got it cross-hatched so that the horses' hooves would get some purchase on that stone and bring those carts upward. It's the same road. 
We know exactly where it began, where it ran, and you can walk it today and read this passage, and you are walking where Philip walked. So Philip got up and he went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a ruler of, of, of Candace, the ruler who was the queen of Ethiopia, and he was in charge of her finances. He's the finance minister of this very important queen. Luke loves to show how the Christian faith is constantly interacting with the powers and authorities of its day, and here is yet another one of those interactions. And we're going to see it's a positive interaction. This man, this eunuch, was coming um, had been worshiping in Jerusalem, and he was returning. He was sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go and join that chariot. Philip ran along. He heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he said, um, do you know what you are reading? And the man said, how am I able to know unless someone would guide me? Now, if you've ever struggled through the book of Isaiah, you have a lot of sympathy for this man. <laughs> because it's really one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Scholars think that there were at least three different Isaiahs who were writing at different times, trying to weave this all together. How successfully is another question. And lest you think you're dumb when you can't really understand Isaiah, it's important that you remember that when Augustine becomes a Christian, we all know how he struggled with that. Nobody doubts Augustine's IQ. He clearly was a highly intelligent person. He tries to read Isaiah. He can't get to first base on it and almost loses his faith. Ambrose says, put that book down. You're not yet ready for it. Let's go to 1 John. Philip said, uh, uh, no, verse 31, and the eunuch said, um, uh, let's see, Philip said, uh, no, he said, how am I able unless someone would guide me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit beside him in the chariot. Now, the passage that he was reading was this, as a lamb that was slain, and as a lamb that before its shearers was speechless, was dumb. So he did not open his mouth. In his abasement, humiliation, his judgment was taken up, and his generation, who will speak of it, for his life has been taken from this earth. The eunuch asked Philip, what should I make of this? Is he speaking about the prophet himself or about someone else? Philip opened his mouth and said, he began from this scripture and proclaimed to him Jesus. And as they were going along the way, they came upon some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is some water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He called the chariot to stop. The, 
They both got down into the water, Philip and the Ethiopian, and he baptized him. And when they arose from the water, the Spirit of the Lord seized Philip, and he, the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, was found in Azotus, and he went about preaching the gospel as far as Caesarea. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, real quickly, what correlations do you see in the narration on Luke's part of these two stories? Yes? Excellent. Oh, say, we've got troubled travelers. Good, yes? Okay. We've got some word and sacrament imagery in here, don't we? Really unusual. This, uh, it looks like kind of a, a uh, at least a, <laughs> a half Eucharist. <laughs> Is there such a thing? Um, just bread alone. Uh, that takes place in Emmaus, and we have a baptism with a, with a uh, unit. Good. Somebody else. Yes. Testament. What? Old Testament scriptures. Leaving Jerusalem in perplexity and confused. Absolutely. They both leaving Jerusalem. Scratching their heads. Yeah. Jesus is the center of the proclamation. Jesus is the center of the proclamation. He preached to him Jesus. They both vanish. Yes. What's that about? These, these very interesting stories. It's, we really maybe not like that because it's a little too magical, huh? Everything else kind of works. Mark's absolutely right. Jesus gets together with these two, you, uh, um, going to Emmaus, and bam, he's gone. And same thing happens here. I think that's a very important point we'll want to talk about for a minute. Somebody else, yes. Good. The Lord of the circumstances. They've kind of come to the end of the road. They don't know where to go. Kind of like this place where Paul is, is preaching in Acts chapter 16. He finally comes to um, Troas. And the, the, only there, in the moment of need, the Spirit shows up to him. Yeah. Uh, one of the players goes unnamed, even though you think the name was probably available. They say that the Ethiopian eunuch goes unnamed is a part of Emperor Yeah. Yeah, good. This is great. Two of the key players that should be named aren't, right, Jim? Good. Yes. Yes. So Mark said, well, gee, the, 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 the protagonist here leaves, and we, we might think that they would be depressed, but they're not. They go rejoicing. Yes. The community is involved. Good. How so? The role of the spirit. Right. Did not our hearts burn? God, the Holy Spirit is bearing inner testimony. Good. Mark, David. Yep. They move from perplexity 
to clarity and understanding to joy. Now, this isn't accidental. This is the report, the echo. As with Jesus, so with his church. Jesus is not just this heroic model before whom we worship, but of course we could never be like him. The body of Christ is a remarkably brave metaphor, ascribing to us far more than we deserve, but it is in fact a real metaphor, it's a valid metaphor, because in each of these stories, we see something wonderfully happening. We talked about this morning the organic union of the human body, that my mind gives commands to my body, my body obeys it, but I'm not parsing it out in a sequential causal way. It works together. The same thing happens here. We've heard a good deal in our generation about what would Jesus do, and good Christianity is, is obeying and following Christ, and I think all that is true. But the interesting thing is we don't see in these stories a consciousness or even a conscious obedience of the church on the part of Jesus. We see something, something more organic of the resurrected Christ now work through the Holy Spirit working through these Christians in ways that they themselves do not understand and yet the ways in which they work are Fulfilling the model that Jesus himself has given them. Yes? Jim, I just noticed that uh, the consternation in both cases is on the unresolved suffering of Messiah. Yes, right, the unresolved suffering and the, the scriptural testimony to that. Now, I want to focus on, on two things here. This is all great. You guys get an A, you pass. I don't have to grade your papers. Um, <laughs> praise God. Um, I want to focus on two things. The role of the incomer. The incomer in the first story, of course, is Jesus. The incomer in the second story is Philip. And secondly, the content of the incomer's speech. What is the first thing in both stories that the incomer does? You've already mentioned it, but just repeat it. Asks a question. And, and John, it's not just a question, but can you give me a, an adjective? I mean, it's, it's, it's an, there's, it's, both of these questions are, are similar. An inviting question. It's a, it's a, per, um, a perceptive question. He's not just saying, hey, how's it going? <laughs> That's just a filler. This question, what kind of things? And we almost want to say, Jesus, don't say that. Making you look even dumber than you are. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Those are really good questions. Those take the perplexed fugitive from Jerusalem seriously. Both of these stories tell us about the power of witness to the gospel 
And both of them begin with a witness asking a perceptive question, not coming on with an answer. One of the ways, one of the most honoring things that I can do as a professor, because people look at me as somebody who knows everything, I looked at my professors the same way. They deserved it. I don't. Um, one of the most honoring things I can do is to ask students questions, really honest questions. And that's the same thing that you as a pastor can do. That signifies to people that you take them seriously. When you ask a person a question, that is a very honoring thing. If a person gets the impression from you or me that he or she has nothing to contribute to us, you don't want that. That's a tr profound insult. So the, the person, the incomer, comes in with a perceptive question. What kinds of things? And it allows Cleopas to unfold this story, and he said, we had hoped. There you hear Cleopas speaking. He's not just repeating information. We had hoped. It was really a close call, if only. This is the way all people talk when they have dashed hopes. Jeez, life is it's rough. It sucks. For once, it looked like I was going to get a break. <clears throat> and I can't understand this book. It's totally perplexing to me. Who's talking about here? Some suffering that's profoundly valuable, important, effective, but I don't know what it means. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch says. You know, the second thing that I want to say is even more important, that both of these interpreters rely upon Scripture to resolve the perplexity. Now, in Philip's case, that won't surprise us as much as in Jesus' case. Because Philip is not God. He is not the Messiah. And he now has already been trained to see that the Messiah is the fulfillment of this uh, Isaiah 53 text. And so he's able to say, that's Jesus. And boy, there is no text in the Old Testament where it's more obviously Jesus. Uh, when I went to Tübingen and studied in the year 1987 and 88, I went, uh, the Tübingen theological faculty had a um, theological seminar, and Jürgen Moltmann uh, said, hey, come and join us. Uh, this is going to be fun tonight because we have a, a Jewish uh, scholar speaking on Isaiah 53. Oh boy, I'll be there. I went. I don't remember his name. It was a great lecture. And he walked through this text and he came to the conclusion and he said, we Jews don't know what to do with this text. He says, you can look through the rabbinic tradition on virtually every other text in the Bible. If you, any of you have snooped around the Talmud or the Mishnah, and you'll see that all these obscure verses, the rabbis will go on at quite some length, and you say, oh man, this is just, this is fantastic, this, this is not good exegesis, this is imagination. But when you come to Isaiah 53, there's a blank spot. 
Uh, one of the great books on the prophets, Abraham Joshua Heschel. I used to teach the prophets Old Testament. I would have people read Heschel. I loved Heschel. Most of it's just text. He comes to Isaiah 53. He has less than two pages on it. He really has just three short paragraphs. He doesn't know what to do with it. This Jewish professor said, I can understand why you Christians see Jesus in this. Looks perfectly good. We Jews do not, but we do not know who we do see in it. And the Jewish professor said, uh, I'm going to say that the servant is Israel. <laughs> and Moltmann stood up and in a very polite way he said, now let, let me just see how this works. Um, you would be saying that, that the servant then would be the savior of Israel. And the man said, yes, that's correct. And Moltmann said, but who would be the savior of Israel? of the Savior. And there was just, of course, this pregnant pause. Because the Jews themselves need saving. And this is one of those texts where we as Christians can so clearly see this anticipation of a suffering servant not called the Messiah, just called the servant. Now let's go to Jesus. So it's really right for Philip to do this. He gets an A for his exegesis. But Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. And in that walk to Emmaus, he is steadfastly appealing to Scripture. He goes back and through the whole Old Testament and shows how the Messiah needed to suffer. Now, that's an interesting question because when you read the Old Testament, first of all, it doesn't speak about the Messiah very often. People who haven't read the Old Testament think that there's a reference to the Messiah on every page. That's not the case. And secondly, when there are references or messianic images, they usually are not related to suffering. And although this Isaiah 53 passage is about suffering, it never mentions the Messiah. It mentions him as the servant of God, not the Messiah. The first text in which I'm aware that there's a suffering Messiah is a text from Qumran. Not in the Old Testament. But Jesus seems to be giving this total history of the Old Testament and, the, and the, the, the tradition leading to the Messiah that it was necessary for God's people and especially God's chosen servants to suffer in order to accomplish His will. And the Messiah is the preeminent fulfillment of that. It's there. If you look back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke his inaugural sermon in Nazareth, chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, you will find that he reads this famous text from Isaiah 61. That is a messianic text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to do these various things. That's, that's the Messiah. Proclamation, exorcism, healing, the powerful manifestation of God. 
in humble ways. Jesus rolls up the scroll, sits back down. What does he say, class? No, not class. Friends, what does he say? What's the first, the first word that he speaks in his first sermon? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If you were the Messiah, what would your first word be? Hey, pay attention. I'm here. Jesus' first word is to direct attention to Scripture and himself as its fulfillment. He's not this spectacular walk-on. He is something that Israel was expecting as a completion of God's purposeful work in its history. And that purposeful work included announcing along the ways what God is doing so his people are not in the dark. It's service learning. Christian witness is witness in which we join pilgrims on the road of life. We find ways of entering into community with them. It's not a virtual context like a classroom. Classrooms are really wonderful. I love my classroom, but it's an, that's an artificial context. Christian discipleship is not virtual. It is service learning. It's an apprentice. What is an apprentice? Apprentice, I was a, a hot carrier. I learned to be a bricklayer. How? You don't take a class on uh, hot carrying. You get taught by hot carriers, and they are crude people. That's how you learn. It's learning by doing. In this context, we ask perceptive questions in which believers are given the opportunity to articulate a new vision of the world and human life. And it will be heard because we have entered into community with those people and know their questions and take them seriously. We help people see the potential of their lives in light of the gospel rather than in all of those dominant paradigms, consumerism, sex, power, the culture of comfort, dominance, that otherwise rule our lives. Once again, both the gospel and the Christian community are meant to model an alternative existence. The moral majority didn't result in this country. The political power and change that the conservative Christians uh, wanted to see happened did not and will not happen. The top-down dominant approach is not going to take place. Does that mean that the church now has no message or no hope? It does not mean that. 
It means that instead of being uh, dominant within culture, we are going to be a witness within culture. The church in East Germany gave me that word. When the church in East Germany first accepted communism, it didn't accept communism, it decided that it was going to be us against them. And for the first 10 years, from 1945 to 1955, 1960, the average Christian in East Germany, communist East Germany, if you said, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? It means I'm anti-communist. If you know what the communists did, it's not a bad, bad idea. They had good reason to be anti-communist. What communism did in East Germany was not pretty. But then one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's students by the name of uh, Albrecht Schoenherr, I used to meet with him, met with him five times with students from Whitworth College. He and Eberhard Betke were Bonhoeffer's prime students. He was the bishop of East Berlin, Berlin-Brandenburg. He says, the time has come for us to change our paradigm. We cannot identify ourselves as Christians as what we're against. We must identify ourselves as Christians, you know what I'm going to say, as what we're for. We choose no longer to say we are the church against communism. We are going to be the church of Jesus Christ within socialism, communism. Was that a good move? That was a good move. We're not against, we are for. And even in this warped culture of power and dominance, and this warped ideology of Marxism, we are going to seek to be a whole body of Christ that will witness an alternative way. Now, at the time that Schoenherr said that, people said, oh, that's a loser's option. There, were a lot of, there was a lot of pushback. When I first went to East Germany, people were debating this a big way. And there was not a lot of happiness. There was some happiness, but there was some opposition to it, too. We learned how powerful that was in the 1980s when communism started to unravel. And not just to unravel, but like pork, it started to rot from the inside. And when it fell, who was there to fill the vacuum? The church. All of those powerful demonstrations, those marches of people. Alexander Plotz, one million people. October of 89, Schwerin, 75,000, Leipzig, 750,000. We saw it on the newspaper, in the news reels every day. You all are old enough to remember that. You're thinking, oh my gosh, the Cold War is teetering here on the brink. The remarkable thing is, remarkable beyond words, if you were going to write a novel, it would be a bad B-rate novel. Not one human life was lost. Not one nose was bloodied. The whole damned system fell in the space of about 25 days without a single violent act. We had spent trillions of dollars. We had planned ways to annihilate the Soviet Union ten times over. 
I know a man who worked in Hannaford nuclear site in Ephrata who tells me he was in charge of targeting. He said, we had, in the 1980s, we had one site in the Moscow area that had 125 nuclear weapons trained on it. One would have been enough. We had 125. He just wrote me a letter three months ago, and I said, are you serious? I am serious. It fell without violence. And largely because the church was profoundly involved in that. That story has never been told. Because our news media do not expect to find anything newsworthy in the church. And they missed the truth in East Germany. The power of transformative communities of human witness. Simply going about the business of doing this absolutely non-sensational thing of being the church within a society. That is the most powerful thing. We like to think that power is like Krakatoa. I've mentioned this before because when you read about Krakatoa, there's no experience of power that I know of ever in the world is big. Far bigger than any atomic bombs. Blew up an entire island. Doesn't even exist anymore. Create a cloud cover that went all the way over London. It got dark in London. Created a tidal wave that was 100 feet high going 60 or 80 miles an hour across the ocean. It's unbelievable. The statistics just blow your mind. We say, that's power. Well, it's a certain kind of power. It's a destructive power. But you know what? Krakatoa didn't create anything. It destroyed everything. The power of the gospel is this creative power that actually brings to life. It's leaven that moves that. It's impregnation that creates a baby. It's the word of life that brings hope. It's the open grave that brings life. It's not too spectacular unless you're the recipient of it, unless you're East Germany. And then all of a sudden, Life has returned. I just went back to some of those places I visited in 1971 in the bowels of communism. My wife and I were there two weeks ago. Went back to these Annaberg, Freiberg. They were so bleak. People were suffering there. I've never seen such despondency and despair. I went back today, yes, two weeks ago. It was totally new. So many things in the world get, go from good to bad. Wow, this is a thing in the world that's gone from bad to good. It was a balm in Gilead. This is the power of witness. We all know that how, uh, how important this is. My guess is if I would ask you, tell me the most important uh, uh, spiritually rich and transformative times in your life. It's kind of a hard question to answer because Thinking back over our lives, so many things have happened, and it's hard to say one is really that point. I've given some thought on this as I'm talking about the significance of the interpreter. These two stories about the significance of interpreting on the basis of Scripture. When we use Scripture, the Holy Spirit blesses what we have to say. When we talk on our own, well, then our, I think our significance probably is in proportion to how well we've talked. 
But when I can plug people into the story of God, I am guaranteed that the the Holy Spirit will bear witness to this because the Spirit has only one job. He's like me. He can only do one thing. The difference is he can do his well. The Spirit bears witness to Christ. When you're preaching Christ, you've got a good friend helping you. When you're not, you're on your own. In my own life, it was Edward Schweitzer. I graduated from Princeton Seminary in 1970. I had lots and lots of questions. Tough time to be there. Civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. Oh, boy. We learned everything at Princeton except theology. That's a bit of an exaggeration. They tried hard, but we, we certainly didn't allow them to succeed very well. So I went and I studied with Edward Schweitzer in, in Switzerland. And Schweitzer used to come into class and, and he would pull out his uh, little day book and he'd say, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got Tuesday free next week. Would any of you like to come to my house? We'll drink some beer and wine and we'll talk theology. <laughs> Up goes my hand. But none of the Swiss kids would raise their hands. I was happy. It was just a Japanese boy who came. And fortunately, his German was terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got to dominate the conversation. And I, I asked Schweitzer's, um, his assistant, a guy named Hasenfratz, I says, why don't you guys ever go? This, this is man's world famous. He's going to get the Burkitt Award. He didn't have it then, but he does now. The Burkitt Award is the, the best New Testament scholar ever in the world. Bruce Metzger got it. It's the only American along, except for Joe Fitzmaier, who's got it, and Edward Schweitzer got it. It was great. I said, you guys should be going to this man. He studied with Bart. He studied with Boltman. He studied with Bruner. Why aren't you going? Hasenfrat says, oh gosh, we feel so nervous. He's a professor. We're just totally self-conscious. We envy you Americans because you can just cast away your ideas and just go sit and enjoy. I said, well, good. You stay home. I'm going to learn from you. <laughs> For a whole year, I would go every two weeks. I asked him every question. What happened to Switzerland during the war? It was surrounded by Nazis. How about Karl Barth? Was he really a universalist? What about Bruner? Why did he fight with Barth? Boltmann, you studied with Boltmann. Why was Boltmann so hostile toward the historical Jesus? Schweitzer wrote four books on Jesus. Four books. I talked with him throughout this. We had a big debate. He saw a big divide between the Gospels and the historical Jesus. I was always arguing for continuity. I said to him, Edward, your fourth book, you're starting to get the light here. He says, am I? <laughs> Jesus, the parable of God. It's a wonderful little book. Jesus is the parable of God. Ooh, Schweitzer was such a good theologian. He was my teacher. He changed my life. One person in his room, he kept inviting me. World famous guy and putting all this time into me, some dumb American. Was it worth it? For me, it was. I'll speak for myself, but not for him. This is the secret of the gospel. If people are going to believe, they have to have an interpreter. And it's you. Do two things. Join these people on their 
journey. Listen to them. Ask perceptive questions. And then speak of Scripture. I'm going to close there. We have five minutes, four minutes. Witness. David. When you first started talking uh, Jesus of the Road, I was impressed that Jesus wanted to move on. <laughs> he has another mission, a further mission, more agenda. His meeting with the uh, apostles on the road wasn't his end game. There's still more of the gospel to go. And this was a stop along the way, and uh, I was yeah. just impressed by that, that right. there's more to the mission. No, and thanks for bringing this up. And here's where I think Mark's point is such a good one. Jesus vanishes. I think that kind of unsettles us. I'm quite confident that this is intentional. It's Luke's way of reminding us that once your witness is given, the Holy Spirit is significantly, is, is competent to continue that in the life of this person. You do not have to be there. It's not about you. I don't have to stay on the mountain. I don't have to hold your hand. And nobody else has to hold your hand. Gone. Saw the same thing with Philip. And Philip does what? He goes uh, wringing his hands, shucks. No, he does what? He's rejoicing. He's seen the light. He's on his own. This is a great confirmation that our people don't need us to babysit them. They're adults. God has seen you on your own, and he'll see them along their own too, yeah. Right. Oh, boy. Um, I, I struggle with this in my commentary because, and I don't know what Carol would say. Maybe she's an Old Testament learner and probably has a better answer than I do. But it, it just seems to me that we don't have a, an explicit text that you can quote. And when you look in the margins of our text, you don't get a reference. Oh, see Jeremiah, this and that. If there's a blank spot. And yet the New Testament writers seem to speak as though the Old Testament everywhere is to be understood as pro proclaiming the suffering of Christ. And I take that as a composite. The sacrifice of Isaac, profound instance of that. The collapse of the monarchy, the huge prophetic testimony, especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah, of the, the, the inevitable suffering that comes upon both the prophet and those who bear the prophet's message. And it seems as though Jesus said, can't you see, this is woven into the fabric of God's world, and that suffering will be redemptive. And that suffering is fulfilled in the Mashiach. Genesis 3.15, um, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I think that's um, speaking profoundly to the suffering, redemptive suffering of the Messiah. Right, okay. But I just had a comment that um, we know that Jesus wore long sleeves and a hat on the road to Emmaus. 
Okay, this is going to be good. Um, <laughs> and how, how do we know that? Because they couldn't see the wounds. Oh, yes, okay. Because if they'd seen the wounds, yeah, they saw right. this guy walking down the road, road with wounds all around his head and holes in his arms, okay. they'd say, gotcha, I know who you are. Okay, good. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Um, just a kind of a comment on the, the witness of the church in the GDR. Yeah. A part of it that I think was so important in that witness was the regular gathering for prayer every right. Monday night. Yeah, right. And I think we don't take that seriously enough in our witness to the world. As right. Odina's mentioned a great thing, and I, I know we're starting to get late here, but you'll, your appetite will be better. Um, <laughs> in 1980, when Ronald Reagan became president, he said, um, we're going to enter an arms race that will put the Soviet Union into a financial catastrophe. We're going to spend them out of existence. And so he started this thing called Star Wars and the Strategic Initiative and putting all these big weapons in West Germany. And the Germans just got cramps because they said, we have seen our cities reduced to rubble. And we don't want it to happen again. And when a nuclear war, Rankin's just pushing, pushing, pushing. He's antagonizing. We're going to be the first to lose. So the church in East Germany, Dina's ranch this, says, we are going to call Monday night prayer meetings throughout East Germany. This was not known in the West. Who cared about East Germany? They call these Monday night prayer meetings for, they call it a Friedensdekata. Ten years, they said, we're going to pray for peace. And they met. And it was from those prayers. I've been to some of them. They had a swords to plowshares um, patch. Those prayers then start to become places where the protests grew. They were leaven in the lump. 1986, 89. Boy, in the fall of 89... They just came bulging out of those doors, Dresden, out of the Kreuzkirche, out into the main square there, into Frauenkirche. Tens of thousands of people. And they had just sung hymns 20 minutes earlier. They had just heard Bishop Krusha or Bishop Rotka speaking 15 minutes earlier. I can tell you stories after stories of the police who said, we're going to take these people out just like they did in Tiananmen Square. I can tell you stories. Johannes Hempel said, don't do that. You can have all the guns you want, but I want you to stay out of sight. Stay two blocks away. I promise this will be peaceful. Police chief says to Johannes Hempel, you better be right. Because if it's not, we're prepared. There were 100,000 people in that square. The bishop spoke for him. The bishop saved them from a massacre. The bishop was the word of God. This is what a alternative community, by God's grace, is capable of. How God will use ours, we don't know. That God will use them, we do. Let's close in prayer. 
Thank you, Lord, for the story of the discerning questioner, the need for the interpreter, and the scripture as the word of light and hope. By your grace, may we do likewise. In Christ's name, amen.